Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can follow us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can follow them on Twitter at Trilon Cinema. My name is Jason Daphnis, and you can follow me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry. I'm on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. I'm Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. Thank you all for being here again, guys. Today we're going to be talking about the 1988 film A Fish Called Wanda, which is going to be playing at the Trilon this coming weekend. Get your tickets at Trilon.org. Aaron, you want to take it away for me? Indeed. Uh, Fish Called Wanda, 1988, directed by Charles Crichton, who also directed The Lavender Hill Mob, uh, an episode that I was not on, but uh, was a prior Trilove episode, so uh, feel free to go check that out. Uh, this was his last film before his retirement. Uh, Wikipedia says that Crichton retired from the entertainment industry and spent the rest of his life living comfortably, fishing in both Scotland and Wales, so congrats King. to him on the relaxation. Sorry about the death. Um, this was a, it's a heist film, right? It's nominated for three Academy Awards uh, for Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Supporting Actor, which uh, Kevin Klein did win. Uh, it also won some BAFTAs, uh, no one cares about BAFTAs. Uh, Cody, you have some information about the uh, Kevin Klein's win, right? Yeah, yeah, a little bit here. Um, his trajectory uh, during the award season was rather unique because he didn't really have any big uh, other big wins or even nominations leading up to the Oscars. He didn't get a Golden Globe nomination, which is sort of a big indicator. Uh, he was nominated for Best Actor at the BAFTAs and then the rest of the cast um, for this movie uh, were kind of littered throughout the, the BAFTA awards. Um, uh, John Cleese won best actor. Uh, Michael Palin actually wore, uh, uh, wore one best supporting actor. And then you had Jamie Lee Curtis and um, Oh, what's her name? Uh, John Cleese's wife in the movie nominated for supporting actress. Um, but yeah, so that was kind of a, a rather unique situation for him. I didn't actually know. Yes. Uh, Cynthia Cleese, who was playing, Correct no, that's his, that's his daughter. That's um, his daughter, yes. Right. I that think is, uh, that's Maria um, Atkin. Maria plays one yeah, Atkin, yes, wife. was playing Atkin, the wife. Yeah, excuse me. Um, yeah, surprisingly, Jamie Lee Curtis was not nominated for Best Actress for this, oh, which shit. seems like a big... Uh, I don't know. It seems like she would have... It's a. It's an L. It's a fucking... Yeah, it's an L on yeah. this. Jodie Foster won that year for The Accused. Uh, I mean, the list, you got Meryl Streep, Sigourney Weaver, Jodie Foster, Glenn Close, and Melanie Holy Griffith. shit. So that's a... That's, okay, so that's really that's a competition. It, it's stacked, but like, honestly, does JLC not belong up there? Oh, like, she absolutely does. Oh, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. Uh, Aaron. Anyway, so was, ju- justice. Yeah, justice for Jamie. Um, yeah, I'm now going to attempt to summarize this film, which is not going to work very well. Uh, Do you want pretty- some... No, just it. just for an editing note, do you want some like yeah. good good music underneath? What can I play? 
just some sort of like uh, kind of squirrely uh, like uh, uh, hijinks. Like play that weirdly sentimental like Spanish guitar that played whenever John Cleese and Jamie Lee Curtis were together. <laughs> that was that was weird. It felt like it should have been on mandolin or something. It was right Italian. It was a very funny tonal departure, but yeah. I appreciate well, it. Anyway. It was seductive. Right. It, I'll find, I was seduced I'll find something. by both of them. Imagine it playing, and I'll find something yes. to play. by Monty Python cast member John Cleese, uh, starring Cleese as well as Jamie Lee Curtis, Kevin Klein, Michael Palin. Uh, four criminals, uh, two of them British, two American, plan to pull off a Jew- jewel heist. Uh, however, they are forced to go into hiding when the Americans' plan of backstabbing the British counterparts goes awry after it turns out one of the criminals had moved the diamonds to an unspecified location. In an attempt to discover the location of these stolen goods, criminal Wanda Gershwitz attempts to seduce barrister Archie Leach, uh, who was played by John Cleese, uh, who had been assigned to the case of the American who was arrested. Um, I, there's so much shit. I, I just literally hijinks. Well, it was a British that. guy who um, was arrested. But yes. Other than that, that was a really good summary. I thought. It's, yeah, that was solid. There's so much stuff that happens. I haven't even mentioned the fish. Like the, the it's a, it's a farce, right? So like, part of the idea is that the plot goes haywire. It like kind of goes out of control. Uh, yeah, and so kind of surprisingly, and kind of interestingly, I think for this genre of crime you know, uh, crime kind of heist film, uh, the crime and the heist takes up about 10 minutes of this. Uh, and the rest of the movie is these criminals trying to piece together something in order to get the diamonds and escape with them, backstabbing each other, uh, you know, backstabbing the other group of people. Um, and that's where most of the action happens here. Yeah. I mean, in a way that is like the heist, right? The heist isn't complete until somebody's got the diamonds and they've got the getaway. Like no heist is complete without the getaway. But to your point, the actual act of stealing the thing of getting it, taking it from the people who own it happens in the first, what, 15 minutes of the film. And then the yeah. remaining hour and a half is all them bickering and backstabbing and trying to find ways to trust each other and always deceiving uh, to that end. Uh, what, what are you guys' takes on this? Should we start with the, with the cha, the um, Cody, Harry, Aaron thing of like, where, what do you, what's, what's your quick take on the film? Sure. Uh, as has been the theme with the with the series of movies that we've talked about and I've been watching, uh, for me at least, and presumably for you fellows uh, as well, I had a lot of fun with this movie. Uh, this one uh, kept moving in ways that some of the OG Ealings uh, didn't, and I don't think that's just because you know this is something that's you know it's a more a more modern. Uh, more modernly set movie you know it was released more recently and kind of had that modern uh vibe and kick to it uh we get all the main players introduced up front and that eliminates the need to characterize them later and it opens up space later in the movie for these people to just riff uh, and have extensive uh bits some of which uh i thought were pretty genuinely uh very funny and then some of uh that were either tremendously dated or overlong or a bit of both uh in some cases uh, we've talked about Klein uh, and Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, you know, Klein winning the Oscar. He was, uh, he had <laughs> patches where he was uh, pretty good and, you know, other parts where he was, uh, again, dated, um, where he was just kind of on the screen too long uh, for my taste. Uh, but Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, you know, watching this, I think of, you know, not to shoehorn sports into here, uh, but um, on basketball teams, it's really common for a team to have like a sort of quote unquote glue guy, you know, someone who does a little bit of everything, does the unsung things to 
you know, enable the team's success, keeps, uh, keep everything flowing. And she was doing a lot of, uh, like setting up other characters, you know, like, uh, John Cleese and, and, uh, Kevin Klein and the like often weren't able to like have the opportunities to be funny without her presence and without her kind of setting the stage and being that, that foil for them. Um, but I did like the ensemble in general and watching them and watching this movie, it's pretty easy, uh, to see why, you know, a lot of people hold, um, these performances in this movie in, in such fond high regard. Uh, the, the, the basketball that this reminds me of the basketball, like Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie is the meme where it's, it's LeBron James for the Cavaliers. And it's just like the stats list on the right where it's like 37 points, 18 rebounds, 13 assists. That is, that is her performance in this movie. Just, just racking up points. You're right. And yeah, the glue guy analogy is almost, uh, like an insult because she is pulling so much weight. She's the uh, jack of all trades. Who's also doing all the trades, the best of anybody in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Um, I also like this movie a lot. It's a real nostalgia watch for me. Um, I don't think I've seen this movie in like 18 years, but, um, it reminds me of my dad a lot because it was, uh, he loves this movie, um, and has a lot of fondness for it. And it was one of like many blockbuster video rentals that we did where like we would be looking for movies to watch and he would remember one and then we would go get it from blockbuster and bring it back home. And so, um, I obviously have a particular soft spot for this movie. It also came out in 1988, which is um, when my dad would have been exactly my age when he first saw this, which was a really sort of a wild uh, time warp to think about. Um, It was super fun to return to this movie that I, um, you know, only sort of remembered and see how different it was and how uh, this was like actually trading space is another um, Jamie Lee Curtis movie, a movie that I definitely saw much too young <laughs> because this is such a like ridiculously horny and uh, raunchy movie. Um, and one of those things that ended up sort of inadvertently being your introduction to a lot of more quote unquote adult concepts. Um, I remember this movie being very adult and very, um, adult humored which is very funny because now that i watch it as an adult i see that it's like it's actually much sillier than most movies um i was really struck by the 1988-ness of this movie and also what a clear personality movie this was like i think that the fact that john cleese was attached to this movie is what made it possible um i don't see a studio uh, today, certainly making a movie like this or allowing a movie like this to be made. And I think probably even then the fact that John Cleese was as successful as he was, is probably what made way for something like this. And you can see that in the sureness of its personality and its approach to comedy, right? Like this is, it's such a unique style, um, in that it's so committed to its lack of seriousness and to its, um, farcical nature in a way that I feel like you rarely see in movies ever. Um, It's just, and that makes it so fun and so light to watch where um, Cody, you said that this movie flew by. This movie feels like it's an hour long to me. Um, I feel like I could watch it twice in a day and just like have a lot of fun watching it. Um, It's just, it goes down really easy um, despite a lot of the dated um, elements of it. And the fact that um, in some ways, I think in my opinion, this is very much a performance film more than it is a um, writing movie, which um, sometimes worked against my own sensibilities in an interesting way. 
maybe we can get into that. But um, yeah, everybody's having so much fun. The performances are all so good. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is amazing in it. Uh, no movie has ever been as horny for anybody as this movie is horny for Jamie Lee Curtis. It's fucking ridiculous, uh, which is kind of funny in and of itself, especially when you consider that John Cleese wrote and co-directed it. Um, the dirty old man that he is. So yeah, I, uh, I like this movie a whole lot. Um, both because of nostalgia and because of um, the fact that it's a good movie, I think. That's interesting. I was, I was talking with a, a friend about, movies that were formative uh, to people's childhoods that like we had just missed. Like I just didn't grow up watching like the parent trap or the Goonies or this. And this is very much a movie that like a fish called Wanda. That phrase has just been like, I've heard it like once every four months, like or read it on the internet once every four months for all my my entire life. But I just haven't seen it, which is especially odd given the fact that like, I would have thought this was right up your alley. (laughs) Well, it, it, like not even like humor wise, but like this is it's written and stars. Uh, it was written by a Monty Python cast member uh, and stars, two members of the Monty Python troupe. Like I consumed every single thing Monty Python had done before the age of nine, probably. Uh, but for some reason, like this had just like, I don't know. I'm going to, I guess I'll, I'll complain to my parents about it. Um, but this, this movie, uh, it, I liked it quite a bit. It, it feels like a movie that I should have grown up with and just didn't for some reason. Um, specifically, uh, a lot of the sense of humor that Harry, you had talked about, that is stuff that is very familiar to me from Monty Python films. Uh, I think it feels know, very much like a Monty Python movie. Yeah. Right? And it's, it's goofiness. It's kind of lack of uh, it's, it's, it doesn't really care again about the writing. It's mostly about the tone and what it can get away with any given moment. I really appreciate that. Um, that's something that I, I really like in movies. You definitely don't see it. Even a lot of comedies today, even if they're like goofy or vulgar, they're kind of hyper-realistic in a way that's not as interesting to or me. There's there's like always a, a come to Jesus moment where it's like, okay, now we have to put jokes aside and like be kind of serious and talk about what this movie's actually about for a minute. Yeah, and that's and I, just so missing from this movie in such a refreshing way. <laughs> the climax of this movie is maybe the funniest, silliest part of this movie, right? Right. Um, in a way that, yeah, I, I really appreciate it. I wish I had grown up with this movie. Um, and I, I think, yeah, just from like a humor standpoint, this movie is about a group of Americans and a group of British people kind of feuding. It does feel a bit like British humor and American humor kind of mashing together at high speed. Um, and it's, this doesn't feel like a Monty Python movie, but it feels like 50% of one in kind of a fun way. For sure. Uh, Aaron, your familiarity with Monty Python makes me really curious about how you like, did that work for your opinion of the movie? Did that make you think more positively of it? Or was it just like, okay, I have more of a grip around this. So some of it's less surprising. Some of it is going to go down a little easier for me. Um, yeah, I think that it, it generally worked for the movie. I think there's a few things that don't work that well. Like I, I do think that Michael Palin is a very good comedic actor. Uh, him winning a BAFTA for best supporting actor for his character in this movie is startling to me. Uh, I mean, he plays a character with a, a, a very, very um, bad stutter that it comes up uh, from a plot perspective quite a bit in the film. Um, and I think he does an okay job. It doesn't read is completely like offensive or ableist to me. Although there's, there's moments I think where it gets bad. I think most of the time when the movie is, uh, uh, bringing it up, it's usually the kind of the bad, you know, quote unquote villainous characters who are exploiting his, uh, uh, his stutter. 
Um, but the fact that he won like best supporting actor at the BAFTAs is I think, I think wild. Like I think just doesn't work. Um, but I do generally think like John Cleese's character is very good. I think this movie feels it's weird to say because it's not like that edgy of a movie, but it does feel kind of edgy specifically. I mean, the main characters are, uh, a criminal who is seducing kind of this older man in order to get these diamonds and the older man who is just straight up ruining his family he is cheating on his wife he is ruining pretty much destroying his family life and you kind of supposed to root for them or at least the movie kind of doesn't care about the moral implications of this right um mm-hmm. and that feels like kind of dangerous in a weird way that feels Almost kind transgressive, of right yeah it like even to this day right and cody had mentioned uh some of the more problematic problematic elements i think there are problematic elements the few elements that i like kind of winced at but there are also a lot of elements that just feel so foreign to comedy and movies today that i found kind of fascinating totally um quick note on uh ken uh portrayed by michael palin uh the if internet rumblings um specifically imdb trivia is to be believed uh palin apparently um based uh, his part of his performance anyway on his father who apparently had a bad stutter. Uh, and so he, you know, my reading of that is, you know, there's, um, some kind of desire to portray that accurately, maybe even, you know, some love that went into certain facets of like that part of his performance, but it definitely reads to me like, you know, instead of just having a character here, who happens to have a stutter. We have a character here who has a stutter and we're going to like stop and point and laugh at it, uh, you know, for every, every so often, um, as, as you said, particularly, you know, by the, the people we're supposed to view as, you know, more quote unquote evil and, and shitty. Yeah. I, uh, I think it's, it's kind of the interesting crossroads you come to when you, you have a character like that in the film uh, and you have it played by, a, you know, Michael Palin, who is, pretty solely maybe not solely but generally a comedic actor who's known for very slapstick uh comedically exaggerated performances and i just think maybe palin wasn't exactly the best dude to portray that like i think if you look at how that character is portrayed in the film on paper it's not so bad but the fact that he is doing this kind of goofier uh portrayal of it um which again fits in with all the stuff he did with monty python but i think today especially it's uh, some of that is a little uh cringy let's say to 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 my eyes yeah i I was surprised by how how little i was offended by it um i'm not a person who stutters so it doesn't matter if i was offended by it or not obviously right but um it's it's worth noting i guess that the stutter at least to my mind maybe i'm misremembering is never itself the butt of a joke um, it's always in service of something else, um, like in the climactic scene when John Cleese's character is trying to um, get information and um, Michael Palin's character, Ken, is so distraught that his stutter is worsened. Um, it also plays into Ken's character arc, right, where after he um, overcomes Otto, his stutter is miraculously gone, which is kind of funny, maybe a little bit problematic. But that's just to say that, like, I don't think that the stutter itself is the joke, right? It's a means to the ends of a joke. And applying that as a means to an ends itself might be problematic. But I I never came away thinking that it was ever supposed to be merely funny that this stutter existed. Yeah. Which yeah, I doesn't necessarily save it, right? So I, I think I'm in agreement with you. But um, 
that's worth noting, I guess. Yeah, I think part of it is also, I mean, we, we did talk about it before, but he's up against three, like, three amazing performances, maybe. I mean, certainly Jamie Lee Curtis and Kevin Klein. I think, I do think that uh, John Cleese also does a great job yes, in this movie. Yes, I agree. Um, so part of it is also that, that just like, he's clearly the odd one out there, I think. Uh, um, definitely. I If I can just comment on Ken a little bit, like, Everything that you guys have said is accurate. I just feel like there's way more sort of necessary, maybe not necessary, but sidelining of Ken as a character because the whole thing with the woman with her dogs, uh, seeing them. It's a weird like, plot, being, right? Being the one. Yeah, it's a completely like that is the only place that Ken is like super important, except the fact that he hides the key, which then he doesn't have later. You know, it's, it's just a way to bring Otto back into the plot and get him clashing with Ken later. Um, but like the fact that he is sidelined to that entire B plot, the whole movie, like every time it came back around to his, I, I didn't feel positively about that part of the movie because every time it came back to his character, to Ken's bits, I was like, okay, so I know what's going to happen here. I kind of see the end point of this. It's going to last three to five minutes. One of the dogs is going to die. He's going to look more and more like a cricket from always sunny. And then eventually it's going to like, end eventually he's going to kill the old lady that b plot will then be severed from the main plot and that's kind of where it is whereas like the rest of the movie the, the arc is between the characters and there's like interesting uh character dynamics at play and they're really like building themselves out and you know coming together and go going apart where that just made ken and it, it's kind of to your point uh where it's like they don't like he is the odd man out both in the cast, both it's like metatextually meta and within the film. So maybe that fits slightly, but I almost felt like, why is, why is he there? He's there for the beginning. He's there for the scene where the woman dies and he's there for the steamroller scene. And that's kind of the important parts, man. I fucking could, the 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 recurring bit where those dogs get killed. It's very, very it's funny. So it's fucking, it is, it is funny, quite man. Good. Totally oh, pretty so good, but pretty good. When it's when, very funny, is the he, thing. Like it's it's funny because that's not an actual argument against what you're saying, Jason. Except that the B plot works that well. Like yeah, everything you just said, I think, is arguable. But the fucking scene where he's wearing like fake dreads and he runs over that dog is so delightful. I I I could not stop fucking laughing at that every time it cut back to him. And just as you see the lady walking with with one fewer dog, I could not fucking stop giggling at that. I thought that shit was amazing. And I think he does have, I in my mind, the funniest scene in the movie, which is the steamroller scene, which uh, I yes. thought was very when, inspiring. Oh, my God. The steamrolling scene is so funny. He's just he's screaming like revenge as he like like rolls at like a mile an hour towards uh, Otto. It's so funny. man. That's, that's completely like. I just want to bring up there's a, uh, a an oral history of this movie at Vanity Fair, and I only got a little bit of the way through it. But um, several of the people who created the movie, I guess uh, Christian Crichton, however you pronounce his name, wanted a movie where somebody got run over by steamroller, and John Cleese wanted a movie where somebody had to get information from somebody with a stutter and had difficulty with that, and just the inherent comedy of you know the 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 sort of communication breakdown there. So the fact that those two come together in what you guys find the funniest scene of the movie. Totally makes sense that the movie started out as the idea for a sing essentially a single Monty Python sketch plus uh like that makes Bruce so much Pilots. sense, man. Yeah. I do I like the I whole movie feels like that. It's kind of amazing that that uh that steamroller scene would basically be just 
completely ripped off for an Austin Powers movie. I believe it's the first Austin Powers movie that has a slow moving steamroller that like the joke is it like pans out and there's like a very long hallway and the thing's moving like one mile an hour. Right. Uh, but the difference here is that th- that scene is like it's like four minutes long. It's like that steamroller is like heading towards that dude for like four minutes and just not stopping. And uh, I don't know. It seems like a shittier movie or like a, a badly edited movie would kind of lose momentum there. But to me, it just kind of kept getting better and better as that scene went along. Um, well, also, oh, yeah. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, I don't know if anybody had read this on Wikipedia, but one of the scenes with Michael Palin's character, the scene that actually isn't that funny of a scene, but the scene where he's getting kind of he's getting tortured and he has like French fries stuck up his nose so he can't breathe and his fish are getting eaten. Uh, A person died laughing during that scene. Literally. I saw that. Oh, that was the scene. I I, I saw this died laughing thing. That was the scene. Yeah, it was a Danish dude named uh, Ole Benson. So fucking rest in peace. His heart rate raised to uh, 250 to 500 beats per minute. Yeah, he he died. So I feel kind of bad now, actually. No, I mean, that's funny. Uh, yeah, it is. I, it's it, funny it is in the funny. exact same way that that scene is funny. That's, in that that's it's, a very good point. In, in that it's like it's like a darkly transgressive, you feel a little bit bad about laughing at it, but, but something about the edge is what makes it funny, which is kind of the stealth theory of a lot of this movie's comedy, right? Is that like... Like there, there's something about the uncomfort that you're feeling laughing at the fact that you're watching an assassin and rooting for an assassin to kill an old lady and only succeed in killing her dogs. Or you're rooting for uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Otto to pull off this thing, right? Or at least rooting for Jamie Lee Curtis. There's something about the fact that you've departed from the like conventional morality so entirely that is, uh, like Aaron said, semi-legitimately transgressive and that discomfort lends uh an extra quality to this humor that makes it sharper literally sharper i think right in a weird way yeah if uh if this movie you know you could kind of see a version of this movie that's like a tarantino film right like just the the idea of most reservoir dogs is basically yeah yes this is this is kind of reservoir dogs except the thing that this does is that we are not watching any of these characters because they are cool or cool to watch uh, because all of these people are extremely scummy, but it's like, movie is like, yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely Seinfeld or, or it's always sunny. I think, uh, we're like, these people are just fucking terrible people. Uh, but they are still enjoyable, uh, to watch nonetheless. Yeah. There, my favorite kind of comedy. Yes. There's something really interesting about comedy's ability to do that. Right. Where like, you understand that the thing that you're getting from a comedy is different from what you would be getting from a conventional uh, story or um, work, and so you're you're more comfortable or more willing to go on a different kind of ride, and that includes giving up on like traditional morality in a weird way, right? Where like like there there's something about the fact that this movie is just so on the nose, silly and fun that makes it super okay to like not be judgmental and and to enter into a space of non judgment um, that is kind of fun and refreshing, right? Because you're just having so much fun. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think it does. Like, there, I, there's a lot of comedies where people are like cheating on their wife or whatever, and I think like 
most of them are just like uh, I just feel like shit watching like funny people. I just uh, I kind of feel like shit watching that movie. Like any of that kind of Judd Apatow stuff, uh, I enjoy some of it, right? But yeah. Um, Whereas like in something like Seinfeld, the fact that they're all terrible people, or like in this movie, the fact that they're all terrible people is actually part of the bit. It's like just it's funny. It's like that's an extra part of the humor. Yes, I want them all to be as shitty as possible. Which sort of leads, maybe not naturally, but toward a point of, and I forget if it was in this uh, oral history or if it was just on Wikipedia, but how some critics sort of compared its, uh, the, the sort of the legacy of this movie is that Michael Christian was a an Ealing director uh, for a few comedies, including Lavender Hill Mob, of course, and that uh, people started to draw comparisons and con- and contrasts between Ealing films and, uh, and this and uh, A Fish Called Wanda. And one of the things that I found interesting that they brought up was how in Ealing films, you're you're meant to laugh and like with how British everything is like the how <laughs> properly how properly like, you know, sort of praising the lifestyle even while laughing at it, like uh, an- announcing it as like a, a proper way to live. And in this film, it decides to lampoon both like in, in interesting ways, uh, American and British sensibilities, but mm-hmm. British sensibilities very very vividly and over the, like very um clearly in there's the scene where that's so interesting th- there's the scene where archie is talking to wanda and he's like do you have any idea what it's like being british uh and he just sort of lists off what a what a dour existence it is that's why we're so dead is what he says most yeah. of my friends are dead Death, we have corpses to dinner. is like a recurring motif right exactly Among multiple characters and and that to me is like the umbrella under which we're watching all of these increasingly like you said like that skewed morality is that we're like we're living under like a more a morbid understanding of of life as British people, <laughs> and therefore that sort of humor that deals with many taboo subjects and and has like no real moral bounds, but plays within the rules that it creates, f- sort of serves that overall. Um, like we're not we realize being British is kind of an awful self loathing existence. And to make you, let's bring you into that a little bit by letting you laugh and making you laugh at some pretty awful stuff. Does that make sense? That's great. Uh, that's really, really well characterized and fascinating. I hadn't really thought about this as sort of a natural mutation evolution of the Ealing Studios model. Um, and I really like that idea. Um, I should say that that also what you're saying is textually integrated into the arcs of these characters, right? Like what you're describing is textually John Cleese's character's arc. He goes from being a man who is quote unquote dead and living this, this joyless existence with this wife. He doesn't love doing this job that he is indifferent to, to meeting uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's character who serves as a catalyst to make him alive again in his own words. He says that to her in the apartment. That's, Almost sort of, and maybe I'm galaxy braining uh, right now, but that's almost sort of what this movie's thesis is trying to do uh, to you, right? It's trying to sort of wake you up. Um, and I think that, that there's part of that in the departure from decorum that's required in that. It's like, look, like this comedy is, is trying to get you to have fun again in the same way that John Cleese's character starts to have fun again when this person enters his life who is alive. And it's mm-hmm. really funny that they do that you, leveraging um, the, the idea of this, uh, this stuffy British society, particularly right because it's John Cleese. So like he's making fun of himself and he's doing the thing he spent his career making fun of. So there's there's no malice in it, right? Like it's self-deprecating. Um, 
and the fact that that uh, Klein's character exists to make fun of America, which it also does extremely well. His physical like, performance in this movie as like a former CIA operative yes. is just the funniest goddamn thing. Oh my god, it's the funniest fucking thing you would say. Um, I would. And uh, and like that that conversation that they have where he's making fun of um, America in Vietnam in the climax is just it's so <laughs> funny, man. Like the it's yeah, it's so funny. This is a very funny movie. Yeah, I, I do think that th- there is kind of something there with uh, the, I think the criticisms of both British and American cultures, right? Like, I think the yeah the coming together at the end uh, is both characters, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's character and John Cleese's character, kind of moving towards each other, right? Where Jamie Lee Curtis's character is, uh, at least ostensibly, kind of... Holy shit, dude, this with, is dialectics. Thank you. Uh, is going to be with... John Cleese, who is kind of this more uh, buttoned up person, you get the impression that she's at least no longer going to be pulling off diamond heists, right? And like backstabbing people. Uh, And kind of similarly, John Cleese is fucking getting divorced, flying to a foreign country with this kind of younger, attractive woman and just going to kind of live out his life there. Right. And you get the, you get the impression that it is making fun of the American way of life, but also this kind of very buttoned up uh, British tea time way of life that uh, I think, you know, my weakness here is that I haven't seen uh, Lavender Hill Mob, but I think if you were to compare it to other Ealing's, not that this is Ealing, but if you compare it to Ealing Studios films, uh, I think like Passport to Pimlico and the Lady Killers are critical of that kind of British posh sensibility, but they are, especially like Passport to Pimlico, the end of that movie is a return to British normalcy. Right. It's kind of yeah. gross. Like British it's always, yeah. but now, it's sort of now that it's like a warm blanket, right? Yeah. It sort of uses that as a, as it's like HQ, as it's forward operating base of, of funny, of like That's very how we're going to present the story. Yeah. This is like a postmodern Ealing movie where it's, it's like, we're actually going to dispense with that return to normalcy and we're going to like actually yeah. throw it up. Um, I really love Aaron's characterization of, I mean, it's funny to talk about the movie in these terms because this stuff is so subtextual and so subservient to the actual point of the movie, which is just to be very funny and have fun. But you're right. Like, right. Like, like Archie and Wanda are like thesis and antithesis, antithesis where like Archie is the, the stuck up, up morally upright figure who, who doesn't actually have any strength of conviction, uh, but, but has to stand for this stuff. Whereas like, like Wanda is all feeling, all emotion, and and seems to be totally committed to her performances, even though they're all just performances. Like when she's with Archie in the moment, she's in love with him. Almost like like for real, even though she's ripping him off, right? Similarly with Otto. And so they, like there's this sense that like like um from this arrangement, Wanda ends up with something to legitimately believe in for the first time. And Archie gets something to actually feel for the first time. And so like, you're right that like classically in the comedic sense, these are two characters that come together and complete one another um, in that sense, which is very interesting. I think the, the bit where uh, Wanda, Jamie Lee Curtis's character, it just has like this Manchurian candidate esque, like, like, 
em- like Trans- emotional emotional reaction to a foreigner speaking or anybody speaking any uh-huh. foreign language. Like at first it start it starts out as like uh, I believe Italian, right? Yep. And then like later, oh, character start, starts speaking Russian, which is like not a stereotypically attractive language, and has like this. It's just like anybody speaking something that's not English. And the, the like, effect of Russian is even bigger than Italian. Like at first <laughs> we think it's going to be Italian, but then he starts speaking Russian, and she has an even more outsized reaction, and it's like, oh, it's it's any language. He just like he starts like naming like Russian authors, like not even saying anything. <laughs> And she's just like um, shooting for him. Sorry, I'll, I'll shut up in a second. One of my favorite jokes in the entire movie is that uh, Kevin Klein's character Otto claims to be Italian and speaks Italian to turn on Jamie Lee Curtis, but he can barely speak Italian. And when they're getting it on um, in, in one of the movie's many sex scenes, uh, at one point he takes her panties off of her and puts he like drapes them over his head and he's like at this loss for words he's he's overcome and so while he's wearing the panties on his head he just goes benito mussolini <laughs> and it's it was it's such a funny fucking moment uh, yes that whole that whole scene is incredibly incredibly good it's very very good yeah yeah that uh that language is kink definitely it stood out to me and at first, it definitely just played like, well, there's probably some metatextual thing that I'm missing out on. Maybe Kevin Klein is like low-key famous for like riffing in other languages and, and accents and, and things. And maybe there's more to it, you know, hearing you guys talk about it, of the sort of American fascination with the foreign or the capital E exotic, uh, you know, something. But I don't, it's, it's played for such a good laugh that I'm not going to think too much on it. Um, yeah, those scenes were very, very funny. I, I agree. And only something that I'm thinking about now that you mentioned it, Cody, is like when it's first introduced as a as an element of the plot and an element of like the relationship between Jimmy Lee Curtis and Kevin Klein's characters is like I thought, oh, the bad guy, he's very suave. He knows multiple languages. He knows the romantic languages and, and how to turn a woman on, you know, through effective deployment of his worldly knowledge. Uh, and again, like it calls back to his <laughs> again, it calls back to his uh, in- introduction. He's reading uh, Nietzsche and he shoots out the light or shoots out apes his alarm. Don't shoot, a- apes don't uh, read philosophy, right? Isn't that one of his lines? Uh, apes don't read. Apes read philosophy. They just don't understand, don't understand it, it. <laughs> which is an incredible which is a harrowing line for me in particular. <laughs> uh, but the way that like then later in um, in Archie, like it's revealed that that's not something that's like a villainous trait. It's not like it's not something that was used to define the character as evil or as suave or as more American or whatever. It is just something that is is totally on uh, JLC's character. That she is that it's an it's an element of her character that other get other characters get to play off is the fact that like multiple lang- or, uh, or or foreign languages are a turn on for her uh, rather like when I when I heard Kevin Klein speaking Italian I thought okay we're gonna return to him speaking Italian as like the bad guy gets the girl through just like overwhelming sexual prowess and then you see. Uh, John Cleese doing it, the exact antithesis uh, of anything sexual or or uh, at all gratifying. Oh, I don't know. And him dancing around on a speedo wasn't. Uh, wasn't... You do almost. You do almost see his, the side of his penis. Very. Oh, yeah. very you see. Surreal. You see his pubes uh, for you sure. Pubes, I wrote yeah. that down in my notes. You see. You see John Cleese's. <laughs> you, wrote, pubes. you wrote that down in your notes. I did. I thought, yeah. Uh, I saw Cleese's pubes. Yeah. You saw. You uh, saw Cleese's fleeces. Oh God! Jason, edit that out. Yeah, thirty seconds. I'm, I'm gonna put a reverb on it, and it's gonna last like thirty-five seconds. Uh, yeah. Um, let's see. Where where were we? Uh, there is a 
Tom uh, Tom Georgeson plays a character called George Thomason. So good, man. <laughs> oh, oh my God. That, that reminds me. Archie yeah. Leach. I think I've said this before. Archie Leach is Cary Grant's real name. Yes. Archibald Leach. Yep. Yeah. So I, I guess that was intentional. Uh, somebody in a piece I was reading called out that like this movie is like hypercritical of um, British normalized, like uh, self-loathing and stuff, but it still manages to find a way to put like one of its most, one of the most popular English born actors in the film in a very fun, surreptitious way. I don't so know, can you imagine if Cary Grant was in this movie? Oh, can you imagine? I almost imagined at times I, om- and maybe it was the mustache at times. I almost imagined Robin Williams in the Kevin Klein. Uh, oh yeah. Oh my God. If it had been made maybe like closer to the Mork and Mindy days, I could have seen Robin Williams in that role. He would have crushed 3, percent Yeah. I mean, Kevin Klein crushed it to be clear as well. He really did. But, uh, yeah. To the point where I, I was maybe going to bring this up. Like it's, it's wild how in my mind, like maybe Kevin Klein really deserved that win because like the character is all him. Like, I don't think on the page, this character is nearly as funny as no, no, he's, he's just like a goon. He's just like a dumb American goon. And you know, that's ultimately what he is on paper, but seeing the character embodied that way, like I, I say that I got flashes of Robin Williams just because of his delivery at times. It seems like in uh, inspired by that sort of manic spastic delivery, but throughout, I don't know that I, I don't think that anybody else could have taken on that whole character and made it, made it a his in the way he did. A uh, quick note on, or I guess a, a prompt for you all about the character of Otto. We've talked about the, the climax of this movie a little bit, um, how Otto is in a very, uh, slow moving fashion he gets crushed by a steamroller uh, and then in the one of the last shots of the movie he's shown with wet concrete all over him he's hanging <laughs> clinging onto this this escape plane uh, that's you know zooming us out of the movie uh, apparently in the original I guess in the original version I, I think it was specified that it was US audiences uh, in test screenings um, w- wanted to counter this it, originally Otto was just to stay dead uh, and then they added the bit of him at the end, you know, oh, just kidding. You know, uh, this character he becomes a zookeeper or something. No, he he uh, he becomes the minister of justice in South Africa. <laughs> it's, <laughs> one of the funniest, it's the funniest joke maybe in the whole movie. And it's that, just a log line at the end. It, that kind of shit is absolutely a Monty Python. I mean, that it's the same bit from the beginning of uh, uh, Holy Grail where there's like the credits and then the credits start like speaking to the audience like my sister got bit by a camel once, which is like kind of a, now it's like kind of like a wacky, like a kind of a cringy joke. But like when I was a kid, that shit was the funniest thing I'd ever seen in my life. Like the idea that the credits were like showing the actors and then kind of went off kilter a little bit. And then like, there was a message saying like, we forgot the rest of the credit. It's like, I didn't know you could do that. Like, well, just like what what better a way to, to finally sort of like be in, in epilogue for the thesis of the entire movie than, than just to be like, Hey, we're like, we're not taking any of this shit seriously, including the, like, the, like, where are they now epilogue at the end where they say that, uh, Wanda and Archie had 17 kids and founded a leper colony (laughs) is what (laughs) they say about them. Uh, and, and Ken goes on to be the, uh, master of ceremonies at SeaWorld. (laughs) Um, it is like I, it's straight up goofy it is not it is it has no adherence to the actual plot of this film um it is so just funny. them goofing around yes uh, i feel like we interrupted you cody 
Um, uh, no, I was, uh, I was, oh, oh, the only other thing I was going to cap it with was, I, I think I preferred it a little bit better when he was dead. I didn't know if you guys felt differently about it. Uh, um, I, I, the, I mean, the, with, with the, you know, on-screen text, you know, I, I liked that as a, as a sort of supreme capper, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Did, did, um, would you feel differently, I guess, having this auto character be dead, dead, or just like maybe he's on a plane and then falls off as the credits roll. I don't, I don't know. I didn't really follow that action too well. Yeah. Honestly, it felt it like a slight critique of, you know, a- action films and like romantic action comedies where like the bad guy has two or three deaths. So it felt like appropriate by the time that it actually finished to me. But yeah, seeing him outside the window was like, okay, we had to bring him back for one last stinger. And then the last stinger is that they've essentially copied and pasted the same voice file of him yeah. saying asshole from when he asshole. had like peeled out, yeah, which is of such a fucking funny delivery because the first time that they de- that they uh, deploy it is, you know, he's peeling out from a parking spot going the wrong way, crashes into a car and just screams asshole. And you see it, you don't see him. It's off screen. Uh, and then the next time that it's deployed again, off screen. And then another time you see him saying it in the car and it's just the same exact <laughs> voice clip over yep. and over, whether you see it coming from his mouth or not. And then at the very end, of course, that stinger asshole, it, it, it wrapped better than it felt to me to begin with, I guess the fact that he was coming back. Uh, but that is a good point to bring up is like, how far would they stretch that joke? They already stretched his death into a four minute like squishing scene. But I felt like once I saw the concrete squishing underneath of him, I'm like, yeah, that would kill you in real life, but they've sort of done that fun movie thing where they put in that that buffer clip of this does not mean death, like there's no blood, so he's not dead. Uh, it it didn't it didn't sit with me too poorly, I guess. I I mean, I guess I I didn't dislike it because it was funny, and then also because I think that the apartheid joke uh, is is one of the funniest jokes <laughs> in this movie, legitimately. Wait, which one is that? He goes on to be the minister of oh, justice yes, in South yes. Africa. Okay, yes. <laughs> Which, like, it was 1988, so that was still South America or South Africa under apartheid. So they're basically just calling him a Nazi again, uh, which is just very funny. It's like, and and kind of politically um, transgressive in a good way. Um, yeah, so that's a great performance. We should probably talk a little bit about Jamie Lee Curtis and what a dynamite performance she has here. Um, where she's just a like a tour de force, I think, right? Like, it's a surprisingly demanding uh job I think that she has in this movie because she has to assume a lot of different roles and just as Wanda herself has to quote unquote improvise and play a lot of different people to a lot of different people and embody relationships convincingly uh, there's also an extra subtextual challenge where like Wanda has to also be actually committed to each and every relationship she is a part of to the point where like in, in an almost like uh, Hitchcockian way, like like fiction and reality blur for her a little bit until they don't, where she seems like she's committed at different levels at different times. And I think that Jamie Lee Curtis makes the contradictory interiority of this character's logic completely comprehensible moment to moment in a way that is really impressive, I think. Like, I just, I basically just think she gives a phenomenal performance in this. And like, it's such a classic Jamie Lee Curtis performance because it's so funny and so smart at the same time, which is, I think something that she does really well. Um, just like through mastery of timing and understanding her character, et cetera. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that her role is that much more important that she puts, like she is responsible for bringing so many characters together 
to throughout the movie. Like she is right. the one who, well, either, either intentionally or not, she's sort of like the invisible guiding hand of the plot in a lot she's of the ways. She's the engine of the plot for sure. Exactly. Like she uh, steals the key from the, um, from the treasure chest in Ken's fish uh, fish tank. She makes Otto go back to apologize to Archie where he catches Archie robbing his own house to get the locket back. Like so many, it, it's woven in there where it's all parsable moment to moment. And I think that's because of like the scenes that they give between uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and other characters, but just like it does not, it, it, it's all zany and wild, but you don't really lose track of why people are doing what they're doing. And it's like in great part, I think, to the impression she leaves on screen and like the fact that they give her the important lines for and and actions for advancing the plot. I I agree. I think that she's definitely the most important character to the plot. Uh, as far as like the funniest moments, I think that she had fewer and further between, but still still pretty still really like a funny comedic element of the movie as her character was. Yeah, she's really good. Even just her her kind of moment i think the the first moment that i noticed her really just like just killing it was um when she is talking to the american criminal who is uh in jail uh, and she has to lie to him for the first time about whether otto is like backstabbing uh the american criminal and like whether he's like responsible for him going to jail um just that that performance was like so good where it's like one line delivery where she just delivers the word no and she has to pretend to be like oh i'm not i'm not like i'm not in cahoots with this guy it was so oh, good she says it three times right she's she like goes, no, no no and then she like pauses for a moment she goes like no. she's considering yes and, and it's like no. oh she's like yeah. she's so good at playing a person I mean, just playing like, this role look at look at what that looks like on the page and then look at what she does with it right it's just like holy shit yeah, like that, the, the show. whole truth of that that scene lives in her performance rather than on the page. For sure. Yeah. Um, shout out to her. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to Jamie Lee Curtis. Very good. It turns out JLC. Uh, where do we want to go from here? Are we are we near? We want to talk about our, our formative Jamie Lee Curtis performances. Oh, Aaron, yes. you, we had wanted to talk about that a little bit. We had a request from uh, friend Anna Miller uh, to name our uh formative jamie lee curtis performances uh which i I, i'm gonna be honest i'm actually looking at the filmography i don't know if i grew up really watching i think the closest thing would be freaky friday for me which like i watched and liked as a kid but wasn't like one of those movies for me um so i don't know if i have an answer to it hopefully you guys do i mean do i have an answer yes it's freaky friday like i didn't watch I didn't watch Halloween until college. Actually, it was in a film class that I first watched the movie Halloween. I know that that was a lot of people's introductions to her. Uh, and I just haven't really kept a really close, uh, I guess, proximity to her career since then. I know that, like, I remember seeing her in headlines and on the news and stuff and just knowing who she was, but not really having a whole lot. I'm looking through her discog- or not discography, film- filmography myself, and I've seen maybe four or five films that she's actually been in or that she's known for. So I got to say Freaky Friday, but it wasn't like it's just the touchstone one. It's not that that movie left a huge impression on me or that her performance in it did, uh, but that it was just like the touchstone, the one that I remembered seeing probably first. Um, I had seen trading places and a fish called Wanda actually before freaky Friday. Um, I will, I do recall though that like freaky Friday, um, which is, this is the, uh, the remake in 2002, 
right? The Disney one with uh, yes. Lindsay Lohan. 2003. And, yes. yes. 2003. And Jamie Lee Curtis. That was like one of the first ever performances that I watched that as like, even as an, um, an 11 year old or whatever, I was like, I was conscious of the fact that I was watching a very good performance. Um, that movie is not great. In, in fact, it's kind of very contemptuous in a lot of ways. It's deeply, deeply racist. Um, but Jamie Lee Curtis's performance in that movie is extraordinary. Um, so it's maybe worth watching just for that. Uh, she's just like maybe one of the best comedic, t- like actors in terms of comedic timing ever, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, it was that. Um, I saw uh, True Lies, uh, Fish Called Wanda, Trading Places. She is a very sexualized character in all of those movies, which is um, troubling for me because uh, she kind of looks like my mom. So that's a weird thing to talk about. Uh, but there, there was a there was a sense in which I was watching this A Fish Called Wanda movie, which came out when my dad was 28 and perhaps right before he started dating my mom. So that was a lot to think about, much to consider. Um, <laughs> now so that's it's a lot weird, for everyone to consider. That's a weird relationship I've always had with Jamie Lee Curtis. Cody, top that. Uh, I cannot. I don't know if anybody in the world can. Um <laughs> What I'm getting from all this is that I need to watch Freaky Friday. Uh, it sounds like um, haven't seen it. Uh, I've obviously known about it uh, for however long it's been out since I've been alive. Uh, She's the, so good in it, dude. It's yeah, and I mean I like Lindsay Lohan too, um, for what it's worth. So um, yeah, I'll add that to my watch list. Uh, the uh, the earliest memories I have of watching Jamie Lee Curtis in movies are <laughs> with um, Christmas with the Cranks and True Lies. Um, Christmas with the Cranks is a dog shit movie, um, but Jamie Lee Curtis is really, she's she did what she could. She I remember her, I just have brief like flashes of her in my, my mind brain of her really emoting um, like a lot. I don't, she, she's good at that and kind of in True Lies too, like the memory of her just being truly freaked out by everything Arnold Schwarzenegger is doing. Um, thankless roles uh, in mediocre sure. to bad movies uh, in, in both cases. And then it was sort of uh, after col- or after I'd graduated from college, I'd finally seen Halloween, which, um, you know, Halloween is remembered for a lot of different reasons. Um, the, the She, I mean, obviously people know like Jamie Lee Curtis is in Halloween, but I feel like Halloween is a movie not so much specifically remembered for her performance um but like as far as like her influence on as far as my limited you know expertise and like the the iconic horror movies uh you know category goes um she like was seemed to be very influential uh you know as as far as you know what she what she brought to that um going in you know everybody who tried to copy halloween going forward uh and then trading places was one that i saw relatively recently um liked her in that she's in this movie i don't know if you guys uh, uh, knives out um she's what's that in that uh it's a formative jamie lee action movie I, Other than Freaky Friday, nobody had anything formative to say. I'm literally no, was, just going through every Jamie Lee Curtis movie that I've watched. Excuse me. Google. Uh, no, I was. I know that it's going to get pooped on, but I, I'd honestly say if you enjoy her performance in A Fish Called Wanda, it's clearly not as much. She's not as big a part of of Knives Out. She is a secondary character uh, in a in a in an ensemble cast, but very much the same notes I got from like her ability to like 
play a character playing a character playing a character deceiving uh and very comedically like self-aware very very similar vibes off of her character in fish called wanda and her character in knives out her character in knives out is obviously more understated uh less heavily sexualized obviously but very much in the same vein so i would yeah i would say like going forward knives out will be a formative <laughs> okay so i've seen maybe like two or three of the movies yeah, that you've seen like two jamie lee curtis yeah. movies. so that's, what I'm I, that's that there's my point if if I've seen Freaky Friday and Knives Out, Knives Out is definitely a formative one. I guess that although you're old enough to where it's not formative, you're just like an old guy now. There's no form. I can still be changed and shaped by my experience. No, it's hardened. I'm not. You're, I'm you're not old, done. Your life's guys. over, Jason. I'm not finished. You're only I'm a work in progress. Your reflexes will slow. Your eyesight will get worse, but everything else is pretty much the same. Uh, well, they're not good already. So, uh, well then. That was a fun little game. I hope Anna enjoyed that. Um, we hope to hear what her formative ones were. Nobody asks a question like yeah, that without weird. having we can't, we can't hear what hers are. Oh, hers, hers, hers is here with it's Freaky Friday for sure. Okay. Wow. 100%. It's got to be. Yeah. It's, it seems to be a millennial thing. Um, okay. That was fun. Now on to, uh, I think, our next segment and a segment we like to close the show on, uh, which we like to call. I don't seem. Okay. There we go. <gasps> Cody's noties. That was in my ears. That was perfectly on. Cody, I mean, we're it true to how it recorded, but in my ears, that was perfectly on. Fifty-five. Can edit, edit, edit that out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if we can edit it so that it's like even worse than it was live, I think that would be a fun bit. Um, but I'm not the producer here. I, I'll leave that in the hands of our super producer Jason Daphnis. I don't. I don't. I don't yeah, yeah. The podcast, like me myself, is a work in progress. Wow. Um, in any case, uh, hi, um, couple, uh, of, um, you know, uh, prompts for you all today. Um, I've got two of them. One of them, uh, is, um, one that was shared in the, the dregs of film Twitter sometime last week, uh, that we didn't talk much about, uh, off the pod. Uh, and I kind of regret that, but the top four movies that, that you boys found during quarantine, um, I'd be curious to hear what those are. Um, and I think we established for the purposes of this, we're not including like rewatches. Um, these are movies that we discovered fresh, uh, you know, during these wicked times of isolation. Um, and I guess I can start, uh, giving mine, uh, unless anybody has anything they want to say first. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I put up my hand because I wanted to be first after you. That was confusing. Okay. I'm sorry. Figured I'd give you that. Um, okay, perfect. Um, for me then, uh, and I'm, I have these vaguely ordered in, in, you know, when I watch them first. So the first one for me is Memories of Murder, um, 2003, released, directed by Uncle Bong, uh, Bong Joon-ho. Uh, after that, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, uh, released in 2014, directed by Anna Lily Amarpour. Uh After that, number three, I will go Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, a 1994 release, directed by Ang Lee. And then I will round it out with Last Year at Marion Bad. Uh, 1961 release directed by uh, Alain Rene. Does Ang Lee not get the props deserved? He absolutely doesn't. That mo- that dude is a master. Right. Like I, I think everybody individual individual films from his filmography. People are like, yeah, obviously that's so right. Dude. These classic films, but like he never gets listed up there. And I feel right. like he has enough to where like he should get listed up there. He's, yeah, he's, it's fucked up. Yeah, he's so good. Man, when, when your worst great so film is Life of Pi, you're doing something good. You know what I mean? Yeah, and like he's he's made some unbelievably good movies. The Hulk. Yeah, like the Hulk. 
Sorry. Jason, I believe you were next. I, I was next. I regret this because Cody added a lot of information into his picks uh, about director like and directors and shit. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you don't have to. Yeah. No, 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 no. I, I, I'll, I'll die on this hill uh, gladly. Um, my choices, I sent this to the group chat, so these won't be new to you, uh, but they might be new to you, uh, dear listener. They are uh, The Apartment. I'm forgetting the director. Was that Billy Wilder? Uh, that was Billy Wilder. I'm the a apartment? piece of shit, uh, and I can't remember, but that sounds right. It was, yes. it was 1949 Billy Wilder, right? It was 1960 it? Billy Wilder. Okay. Uh, that was way off. The Apartment, uh, which I, I love that movie. Uh, Cody lent me the Blu-ray around New Year's, and we did not get around to watching it because I'm a sleepy baby boy, and I wanted to go to bed. And then uh, I i don't think this is in chronological order of when I saw them, but uh, Les Samurai, I watched that uh, on recommendation from the crew. And boy, God, what a, what a movie that'll bring you low. Uh, two movies that'll really bring you low. Uh, Paddington, uh, because I had heard from more people than just Cody, but primarily Cody about how good that series, uh, is. And, and film. I guess, I guess is planned to be, is there a third one of those hitting? Yeah, I think it's been greenlit, but it's just, you know, kind of, yeah, kind of murky right now. There's also apparently this like overseas animated, I don't know if it's like a TV show or like a low key channel that is like Paddington getting into adventures. So I don't know how yeah, that affects like uh, like the film show. adaptations. Yeah, yeah. I think it's I think like it's a separate that. thing. It's like a separate design and all that. That's yeah. Mm. Uh, I'm also seeing now that I watched Les Samurai and Seconds, which was my next film uh, of the pick, back to back nights in July, July 7th and 8th. Which, whew, man, I don't know where I was at that man, time. A banner week for the Daphne's yeah. house. Uh, Seconds 1966, Les Samurai 1967, and Paddington 2014. I think uh, both are like all. Easily the best films that I've seen in quarantine. I'm sure that there would be some pretty straightforward, uh, you know, runners up, but I am not a cheapskate. I choose to stick to the prompt. And uh, and with that, I'll hand it off to. Not a coward. Uh, well, that, well with that, I'll hand it off to Harry. I know that we're a little bit out of, out of order, but we'll, we'll end with Aaron. All right. Um, I don't know if anybody who listens to this podcast follows me on Twitter. It's perfectly all right if you don't. I wouldn't follow me on Twitter if I were not me. And, uh, but I already posted about mine cause I'm a, a poster. I post, um, but they are, I post, um, they are in the mood for love. Wong Kar wise, 2000 movie. Um, I also watched fish tank, uh, Andrea Arnold from 2009, uh, Yasujiro Ozu's late spring from 1949. And then uh, his motorbiker Island, uh, the Nobuhiko Ubiashi movie that we recorded about. I don't know if it's cheating to include one we recorded about, but Absolutely that's one not. of my favorite movies. It is an inc- uh, man, I want to watch that movie again. Yeah, I uh, I also I think I've watched almost all of the movies that you all have listed. Um, I forgot a bunch of the movies that I watched in quarantine because time has no meaning. So this was a fun, interesting education in how quarantine is affecting my memory. <laughs> you know fun it's fun it's fun it's an idea of fun yeah i I will say that uh i I was gonna make fun of you all for not mentioning any movies we recorded on because what we fucking have a film podcast but then harry mentioned his motorbreaker island which is uh one of the four uh i do not have director years if you want that you just gotta google it but uh yeah for his motorbreaker island was one of the favorite movies that i had seen during quarantine um, I will say, uh, also a movie recorded on Laine. Uh, I really like oh, yeah. that movie. Um, I saw one of, 
I want to say three Ghibli movies that I had not seen, which is only yesterday. Um, I saw that for the first time like a month oh, ago. Oh man, I love uh, only yesterday. That movie, yeah, that movie's like a four star movie until the end, which is like a perfect ending to that movie. Um, yeah, just a really delightful film. I feel like it's not as talked about. I mean, it, it's not a Miyazaki directed. Uh, film, so maybe that's why the art style is different, but in a way that I actually right. really was that love. Uh, was that Takahata? Yeah, I believe so. Yep, yes, it was. Man, I gotta uh, see more, year, more non uh, Miyazaki Ghibli films. Yeah, uh, have you seen that one? I have not seen Only Yesterday. I uh, you should watch it. Watch wait, wait, wait. Is, is Only Yesterday the one with uh, 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 Take Me Home Country Roads? That's not it. No, no, that's Whisper okay. of the Heart. No, that's that's the one heart. that I've most recently seen. Yes, yes. Uh, and then the best movie that I've seen over quarantine is My Cousin Vinny. My Cousin Vinny fucking rocks. That movie's great. Wow, uh, King. Maybe maybe Lane is actually a better movie. My Cousin Vinny has Marissa Tomei in it. And, uh, so it wins. It's number one. It's hard to, hard to complain with that. Um, Aaron, you were the one that I was trying to fire shots at the bow uh, over about oh. Runners Up. Do you have Runners Up? Oh, I was just going to say, I, 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 well, I took it off because I'd seen it before, but I did watch Casino Royale that uh, is one of my favorite movies uh, and any chance to watch that and uh, annoy every single person I'm watching with by stating how good it is every few seconds. There's just like a few movies, specifically action movies, like more adventure action movies that every few seconds I will just say, wow, how good is this? I'll do the same during uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark where I will just say, hey, this is iconic every like 14 seconds. What's, what's um, better than this? What is, what is, do you see the boulder? It's iconic. You got the statue. It's iconic. You got him on the ship. That's iconic. You got the whip. It's iconic. Anyway. Yes. Wow. Those are some great lists. Um, thank you for sharing those. I do have one more list. I, I know we're running a little bit long here, but I do have one more list uh, for us to talk about. Uh, if you got, if you, uh, you guys are game. Um, this is actually going back to uh, a previous sort of noty bit that we did where um, we got a name and, and guess the top five most popular letterboxed uh, oh, love movies for the release here. And oh, I, no. I was curious. You look like bad the, film the, fans, man. The, the fact that it's 1988 and not, you know, 1873 or whenever that one movie came out, uh, the, I, a different kind of zesty flavor for us to talk about. Um, so the top five here, um, you know, any preliminary, uh, you know, guesses are welcome. I will say top five. for this grossing or what's the, so to, again, so as far as the number of times that the movie has been logged on letterbox, these are 1988 oh, yes. released movies. Um, I will say uh, three of them are animated. Uh, we have three animated movies uh, in this list. Um, we can maybe, uh, we can maybe start with, uh, you know, think about the, uh, the studio Ghibli movies that, um, that may have come out this year. Um, uh, let's get some guesses out. Not, there. not Nausicaa, not no. Uh, oh, uh, uh, Totoro. It's gotta be Totoro. Yeah. Totoro yeah, is number Totoro. one, the number one yeah. most popular movie on Letterboxd for 1988. It wasn't. Uh, did, did uh beauty and the beast come out in 1988 or was that it, uh it was it did not that was a couple years later um, that's what i know. okay but uh we we did uh we mentioned um a director of one of them uh takahata um there's a, a movie by that our tour uh on this list that's one of the animated ones and this is actually a blu-ray oh. that i borrowed from jason yeah it's grave of the fireflies grave of the fireflies that is number five i didn't even know miyazaki did not direct that one movies yeah. that will bring you low the uh yeah. the so, so that's those are two of the three animated the last one is one that we actually did an episode on 
Oh Christ! Uh, Pokemon Detective Pikachu. Uh, <laughs> Akira. Akira. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Akira came out. Okay. I forgot. I forgot. 1988. Yeah. Jesus Fuck, Christ. Man. We, we recorded that episode in 1994. Everybody. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, dude. Um, oh so we got God. two left. Uh, these are numbers two and three. Uh, number two is widely considered to be one of the best action movies uh, of all time. Die Hard. Uh, Die Hard. Yep. Die Hard. Uh, nice. wow. actually sweeping this. Yeah. And uh, this last one here, number three, uh, it's a Tim Burton movie uh, that I know some of you have seen. Um, Batman Before Christmas. Uh, somebody said Beetlejuice. And yeah. That's correct. Oh, yeah. Beetlejuice. Yeah. Name of Before Christmas was like Beetlejuice. Don't, don't say um, Oh, you just said it for the fourth time. Oh, shit. Um, here it comes. Bummer. We'll have to go around the horn again. With the depreciating value of, of the name, you actually have to say it five times now. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's, uh, rate. Rate. it's uh, it's not inflation. So yeah, I remember before Christmas was ninety three. I'd like to get out there because uh... Aaron, Aaron, do you think my joke about the price of, of the inflating, uh, rather the uh, the inflation and the 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 value of the name being lesser? Do you think that was a funny joke? I, think I want to get inflation your... is no laughing matter. All right, correct. Uh, as it seems, um, since Were we those... had few, oh, since we had few honorable mentions in our last uh bit um a couple honorable mentions here fish called wanda uh is actually number 16 on this list uh and if you're game to guess just a couple more number 30 is one that uh actually a friend of the pod logan lafferty uh had recommended we watched and we all did end up watching it do you remember what movie that was uh did we uh, record about it we did not uh we all watched it uh we streamed it together it's an arnold schwarzenegger movie uh i do remember this it's twins no twins 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 is twins. What? twins is 1988, my what? man. Uh, and last one here. Uh, it's another movie that we did an episode on. It is number 53 uh, on this list that we're talking about. It's a sequel. Uh, it has a Criterion release. Uh, police uh, it has two. Jackie yeah, Chan in it. I just yeah. said Police Story 2. Well, whoever said, said Police Story 2. I'll give it to you. Got it. Whoever said police we, story I think two. we all kind of said it at the same time. I don't Didn't know. Didn't police story two actually come out several years after police story one? It was like four years, right? Like no. four years, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Something. That's kind of unusual. Years. Interesting. Yeah. He was but a busy, anyway. busy guy. That time. Yeah. That's like how uh, Terminator two came out six years after Terminator one. That that always struck Isn't me. That's disgusting. Yeah. Alien yeah. Aliens had a, had a wide gap too. Those James yeah. Cameron sequels. I hear that the Citizen Kane were two a mistake. Is- Hmm. All right. Sneaking uh, it in there. <laughs> have we reached uh, the noties proper? Was that was that the the bulk? Yeah. Oh God. The, yeah. They were long winded noties, but yeah, we're finally they at were the wonderful end. Wonderful noties. I just wanted to make yeah, sure we, we weren't cutting the noties, Cody. Thanks. They are significantly always my favorite part. Uh, well, then I will thank our listeners uh, if we're done. Um, Thank you for listening to Try Love. Uh, this has been our episode about A Fish Called Wanda, 1988 film, uh, playing at the Trilon this coming weekend. Go ahead and. Uh, grab a ticket at trilon.org and then do with it what you will uh, head to the trilon. But if you do that, wear a mask, uh, don't bring any drinks in, check the website for all details on uh, precautions and, and ways to conduct yourself in a theater that Christ, I hope you actually do. Um, my name is Jason. You can find me at Nintendoofus. Uh, I've been Cody. Uh, please be smart, be safe, wear a mask. Uh, and if you'd like, you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry. You can find me at Shiitake Harry. I'm Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RB, please. 
And I, I just wanted to, to get in uh, regarding my remarks that I made during today's episode about the movie A Fish Called Wanda. I apologize. I'm really, really sorry. I apologize unreservedly. I do. I offer a complete and utter retraction. The imputation was totally without basis in fact and was in no way fair comment and was motivated purely by malice. And I deeply regret any distress that my comments may have caused you or your family. And I hereby undertake not to repeat any such slander at any time in the future. Mm -hmm.